This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Stan Hieronymus. Uh, Stan's an old friend of Craft Beer and Brewing and, uh, in fact, has been writing for Craft Beer and Brewing since our very first issue of the magazine, which is now six and a half years ago. Stan, uh, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. It's about time. <laughs> you know, I had no idea, and I hadn't even thought about it. And then, uh, you know, last week we were chatting about a, a story for the Best in Beer issue, uh, which I will talk about later. Um, you know, and Stan mentioned you mentioned listening to this while you fly, and uh, like I, you know, of course, I'm glad I didn't know that before because that would put an additional level of pressure on me trying to make sure that I'm asking the questions that Stan would want to hear answered uh, from some of these brewers. But, uh, you know, that kind of got us talking, and uh, and here we are. And I thought, you know, obviously we have an article from Stan on Hops Creep in the latest issue of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. Um, we've written about a number of topics, uh, you know, over the uh, you know, number of years for us. So we're certainly going to uh, delve into Stan's hop brain for a bit. We're also going to talk to him about uh, some interesting local brewing and foraging uh, projects that uh, he's covered in his most recent book, uh, Brewing Local. Uh, and we're going to, yeah, we're going to explore a bunch of topics here with Stan. Uh, before we get into the podcast, uh, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GD Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GD ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize, like Russian River, Nkasi, Jack Sabby, Samuel Adams, and more, trust GD to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft-brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. I mentioned our Best in Beer issue uh, last episode, and I'm going to mention it again. Obviously, uh, Stan, since the founding, or for, since our very first uh, Best in Beer issue, which I think this is the fifth year now that we will have done a best in beer issue. Stan has written his yearly critics list of favorite beers, uh, favorite breweries, etc. Where the folks that moved him in this particular year, and he's going to uh, reprise that role uh, in our upcoming best in beer issue, which we're working on now. Uh, if uh, uh, you know, for our editorial picks for top twenty beers of of twenty twenty, if you are a commercial brewer out there and you would like your beer considered, please drop me a line and email at jbogner j b o g n e r at beerandbrewing.com, and I will give you instructions on how to submit for that. There's no cost for doing it. Um, we just ask that you only send us your best. Uh, deadline for that is August 28th, and of course, if you'd ever like to send Stan some beer, I can also uh, shoot you his address for uh, for shipping samples, too. Um, just beware, beware, Stan, because uh, the flood is coming. Um, 
on that note, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about hops. But before we do that, um, give me a little bit, a few minutes of background into how you got to where you are today as one of the preeminent, most well-respected journalists in the world of beer and brewing that there is. Uh, that, that's I appreciate the overstatement. Thank you. Um, so the the elevator part is my wife and I used to work for daily newspapers. Her name is Daria Levinsky. She was the first beer writer in our family. When we quit our regular W-2 jobs at the outset of 1992, she pitched a story to American Brewer about the brew pubs of Florida. There were six. So we drove around the state. She wrote the story. I believe the pay was $50. Um, uh, so Bill Owens, who started many things uh, right. and was involved early uh, Buffalo Bill's brew pub um, yep. and then moving on to distilling, um, he's, he also invented uh, the um, Alpha King Challenge. And he, do, he did that like one year, and then he left it to somebody else. So he did many successful sure, things and sure. then would leave some behind. But, but anyway, he liked Daria's story, so he continued to assign her stories. And, and, and we were doing lots of other freelance work during the course of 92. Um, and it wasn't until 1993 that I began writing about beer along with other things. And I certainly didn't expect that 25 years later I would still be writing about beer. But there have just been more things uh, to do. Uh, early on, we did two guides to breweries and brew pubs around the United States. Uh, did require driving all over the place, but th there were a finite number of them now. Uh, then it'd be impossible to do now. Um, right. And, and then at, in 2005, Ray Daniels talked me into writing Brew Like a Monk, and all of a sudden I was writing technical articles as well. Here, here we are. And here for, we are. Four technical books and some other books later. Yeah, uh, talk to me about how you started specializing in the field of hops. You know that is something that you're known for. Um, you've developed deep relationships with hops growers, breeders, um, with hops brokers, and certainly uh, have uh, delved into uh, and, and worked with plenty of uh, of top commercial uh, pro brewers to learn how they are evolving in their usage of hops. Um, how did that specialty arise? Well. Brewers Publications, as you know, did a series of the, those uh, four basic right. ingredients. Matt Brindelson was going to write the hops book. Um, and uh, right when I finished Brewing with Wheat in 2009, and we were talking about a possible future projects and talking to Chrissy Switzer, who had taken over for Ray Daniels at Brewers Publications, uh, and I, you know, I'm just interested in hops, you know. You, you homebrew, you're interested in what the new varieties are, you have the invention of double IPA, which I did several stories for, for different publications. And she said, you know, Matt's figured out he doesn't have time to do it. Uh, and we were at GBF, so I talked to Matt and I talked to some other brewers and they said, yeah, that'd be cool if you did that book. So I started the research on that book, I, I think a year later in 2010. It's just a broad, interesting topic to me. It includes agriculture. Um, you know, my father grew up on a farm. I used to go to that farm regularly when I was growing up as a kid. A little bit of farm work, um, things that you, 
you in the previous talking about Brees, you mentioned hay, and so there, you always, you know, I know this the smell of hay brings back these farm memories to me when you get that in a beer. Uh, so it's it's a pleasant combination, and and there's lots more to learn. Lots happened, unfortunately, since uh, for the love of hops came out. Well, you know, and I think that is an interesting piece of it, this whole timing issue, um, the world of hops and the change in the world of hops uh, in the last decade has accelerated at a level. Uh, I mean, it has never been growing at the speed that it has now, over, that it has over the past decade in terms of innovation around techniques, innovation in brewing, new varieties, or not in brewing, in breeding. Um, you know, uh, the development of new varieties, the marketing of new varieties, the changing and processing of, of hops, um, you know, things like kilning temperature, you know, um, relationships between brewers and hops growers, you know, and, you know, tightening this loop between them. Uh, you know, it really is kind of a heady time that we uh, we will probably look back at, you know, a decade or two from now as, as things settle down a little bit yeah. and think, my goodness, how did we keep up that kind of pace? Um, you know, yeah, from your perspective, uh, it has to be challenging to keep up with that that pace of change. Yeah, um, right now I'm I'm working a story for New Brewer, which I do every other year about new hop varieties. As a matter of fact, and and there are, you know, um, the hop Steiner Lotus has been out a little bit longer. Contessa, that's that's a new lager hop that they have, and. And that was originally bred in 2004. It's been tested, and you know you write about it all the time. And maybe it's going to be released. And now it's released. Um, Hop Breeding Company uh, is going to give a name to uh, HBC 692, which a lot of brewers already know about. It's a daughter of Sabro. Um, and uh, the Ger German hop breeding program has two new varieties. Hop Steiner in Germany has two new varieties. Great Lakes. Uh, in Michigan, has four new varieties, um, new variety out of Australia, new variety out of New Zealand, getting names, and, and, and brewers know some of these, some of these they, they've barely seen at all. Um, and so there are expanding number of programs, but you can touch base with them. I, I think what's more of a challenge, which you see, in, in, and that's certainly been true, some of your recent podcasts with brewers, is the shifting in the way brewers are using these hops? Um, you know that they're they're thought. Let's try this. Let's try this, and they're understanding that when they order Cascade, um, that that can be one of a hundred different things. And if you go back to 2008, which is a hop shortage, which was brief lived, but the largest brewers in the world were caught short. And they would take anything and turn it into alpha. And that, that meant all of a sudden Cascade disappeared. And Cascade was the, the most important pop, uh, hop to craft brewers. So they'd get Cascade from anywhere they could. They, they were buying Cascade from Brazil that was three years old and stored warm. Oof. And they're going, this is not very good. Let's talk about that. You know, I don't think we've talked about the that hops shortage of 2008 ever on the podcast. Uh, it is certainly something that we write about frequently. I think brewers, especially commercial brewers um, in the world today, 
tend to think in terms that they are familiar with, um, but the history of this era of craft beer is relatively short. Um, the, the you know these brewers are operating. You know if you look at it from 2012 to the present, over you know basically an eight year span, and that becomes that historical reality that um, most are considering future planning based on. Um, you know, but history has told us that um, the history of beer of the agricultural side and everything else is much longer and much more varied than, you know, this kind of narrower history that we've experienced. So let's delve into that in a second. But first, this episode is brought to you by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyors of the highest quality organic herbs, spices, and teas. Whether you want to add depth to your next golden triple with classic notes of cinnamon, pepper, and clove, or artfully layer exotic zesty grains of paradise into a perfect ale, adding botanicals to your brewing is an easy way to customize a delicious flavor profile. Mountain Rose Herbs has been providing organic herbs and spices to chefs, herbalists, and dedicated brewers for more than three decades. Learn more at mountainroseherbs.com and get 10% off your first order with the code craftbeer10. That's all lowercase craftbeer with the number 10. Also, Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in branded drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. They make your job easy by serving as your one-stop shop for everything you need to outfit your taproom and fans. Current trends include to-go drinkware, tie-dyed prints, and portable coolers. Visit egrandstand.com forward slash lookbook to see what's trending. Let's talk a little bit about that hop shortage of 2008. Now, obviously, you were already writing about these things at the time and got to see it firsthand. Um, you know, there's this been there's been this conventional logic among brewers, especially looking at uh, spot market availability of hops um, recently. Although now this calendar year, things seem to be changing again a little right. bit. Um, you know, but there have been there were for a number of years, you know, from 2015 to 2018, 2019, you know, brewers had over-contracted hops and were putting a lot out there on the spot market, which kept prices down, which certainly made plenty of brewers think that these things are going to be available. Why do I need to, why do I need to have contracts in place with brokers and growers for, for these things? Um, and at the same time, we've watched, if you look at the, you know, um, USDA NASS uh, uh, reports, uh, which I, you know, being nerdy about this kind of thing, follow religiously. Uh, um, they, you know, the hops stop. They they measure hops stores twice a year. We've been watching the amount of hops in storage in the United States now grow to uh, the largest that it's ever been. Uh, I think it's a little over a hundred million pounds of of hops, uh, something around that level. Which you know we're now just over basically a year, a little more than a year, you know, supply of of, uh, of hops if you compare it to the United, the typical usage in a given year. Um, you know, but so there has been this logic out there that um, hops are in plenty, you know, plentiful supply that we don't need to worry about this thing. Contracts aren't that big deal. Um, Talk to me, give me a little bit of that background and explain what happened the last time we saw a crunch and a kind of crisis around hops supply, uh, what the factors were that led to that. Well, what happened, of course, that most of the hops in the world are, are still bought by the largest brewers in the world who are interested in one part, and that's the alpha for bittering. Uh, and that, that sort of throws people to think about it the other way because they don't really taste hops in their beer. So they're buying large amounts 
small amounts of those are making it into the beer. Most of them were buying hops on the spot market. Um, you, you had a warehouse fire in the Yakima Valley. And it, at the time, the United States, the growers in the Northwest, specifically Washington, provided most of those alpha hops for the world. Until 1990, for instance, in Germany, nobody grew hops that were used because they were higher alpha. You know, they, they used those hops for bittering, but they, they were going to be a lower alpha hop, people that weren't as interested in efficiency. So that's, that was, in that case, that, that had been less than 20 years that the Germans had been growing any higher alpha hop. Now the Germans grow more high alpha hops than the United States. You know, they, when we they, say high alpha hops, we're talking about, well, like 15% alpha uh, 18, plus. 20 yeah. or more. Hercules right. is, is now the number one yep. of those, a very appropriately named hop. You know, yeah. Hercules is a beast. It looks like a tree in the field. Cones go clear to the bottom. So each, uh, in their case, of course, their hectare, which is 2.47 acres, each, each acre is, is really thick with hops so that you get a lot of pounds, and then those hops are high in alpha. And that's all turned into CO2 extract and, and then dosed in, into beer. But in, if, yeah. So in 2007, the United States provided a lot more of the alpha. So it didn't take a lot of shortage because the, those brewers were living without contracts. Um, all of a sudden, they couldn't get it, and, and the, uh, the, that became clear in, actually in 2007, then it carries over into 2008. The plus for craft brewing that came out of that was, so in, in 2008, uh, farmers in the Northwest could write different sorts of contracts. They actually were receiving more money up front over the course of five years, so they would have the money to invest in infrastructure. So they could put in more kilns, um, more um, uh, pickers. So, so when we say a hop picker, a hop picker is, is basically this giant warehouse where the, the hops travel up and down belts. And, you know, they, they, they get stripped off the binds and they go up and down belts because you eventually just want to end up with the cones. So it's not like a, a human sitting there picking that hop off right. of that. that. That's 19th century. So actually, that's 1950s stuff. Um, but <laughs> they are cool it, machines it, and, it, you know, the size of is, a locomotive uh, right. engine and whatnot. Yeah. It's in, so... So the basic thinking, and some people say it's 22 million, some will say it's 28 million, but to put in 600 more acres of hops is going to cost about $25 million. So it's expensive infrastructure. And what happened is the money was paid up front by the larger breweries. And these things have to be localized too. You know, when we're, we're speaking about it, I mean, these facilities need to be within miles of the fields. They can't be generally off in another, you know, an, another state. It's just, you know, when they pick right. them, they need to, you know, strip them down and they need, you know, it's an immediate process right. where they then go right into the, into drying. They'll rot within 24 hours. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, in addition, of course, they're only used five to six weeks out of the year. Yeah. So it's not like real efficient business. Um, and because this infrastructure went in, and by 2009, 2010, everybody recognized, whoa, we planted too much. And in fact, in the, lots of hops were not even picked. They were just left in the field to hmm. rot. Um, 
and, and then as a bonus for craft brewers on the other side, this is the time that uh, AB InBev bought Anheuser-Busch. And Anheuser-Busch was, they had too much of everything. Hmm. You know, they, they would spend more money on, on uh, everything involving yeast, for instance, and they had gigantic supply, oversupplies of hops stored much of that, I mean, wherever their plants were, but particularly in St. Louis. There are all these caves in St. Louis and other places with cold storage. So they had plenty of hops, and they decided to, they really cut their contracts back. This was true in Germany for Middlefru. Uh, in the United States, it was Willamette. So Willamette in 2008, there were, uh, I think, more than 8,000 acres of Willamette, and now there are wow. maybe 1,000 acres of Willamette. So when, when those, that, that meant where Willamette, had been planted became available for other things but as important all the infrastructure was there that was planted originally for ctz which is columbus tomahawk and zeus which is the high alpha hop was also available and the infrastructure was there so when you had greater demand for cascade for centennial uh, and those those were two of the first to go in because they're public hops no licensing fee, but then for Citra to grow, Mosaic is released in 2012. It, it you know, it blows up immediately. Um, so that what came out of that hop shortage was uh, help fund the next burst of hops for craft brewers. And at the time, craft brewers understood there was a great value in contracting. Contracting is is what uh, tells the farmers that they should be um, planting. If there aren't contracts, and there's sort, it's a certain amount of planting on faith. And you know, and that's such an interesting one that uh, if we look back at the numbers, I think you know the numbers at that time we're talking about something about like thirty mid thirty thousand acres in the Pacific Northwest of, of hops. And the most recent USDA NAS report showed that we're up to like 59,000 acres of hops in the Pacific Northwest um, planted this year. Uh, it's a dramatic increase, uh, you know, which of course mirrors, I mean, brewers are using way more hops and beer these days, and which is also tied to consumers willingness to spend the kind of money on craft beer that can allow you know brewers to put you know gobs of you know 10 pound per barrel hop loads into triple ipas um you know but it is an interesting thing to see just how much of that industry has expanded and just what even consumer preference for a style of ipa that is so hops heavy um, has you know the kind of impact that has had out on the agricultural side of the business itself, um, and, and, a, and an additional part, of course, was the flip that took place, uh, where so many more acres go to those aroma hops. That's why you can have even more of those aroma hops that you were talking about. But one thing, since you brought up contracts, is again, if people go back and listen to some of your recent episodes, you're going to hear brewers talking about picking specific lots. That, that they want to be able to pick the hops that they're using. Well, if you don't have a contract, you don't pick the Pacific. Sure. Uh, now, um, when I was in Brazil last year, 
and this was toward the north. So, so just one region. Uh, and you're starting out in the morning tasting beers, um, and, and you go through, and here's the IPA, IPA, and I'm going, do you get any onion garlic? And, and the brewers say, yeah, I don't know what we do about that. And th- this went on, I'm, now I'm at the fourth stop. Stops one, two, and three onion garlic. Um, the fourth stop, I'm talking to the brewer, and he says, yep, we've had this onion garlic. And every, every one of them, um, we went through their hop bill. And what consistently, one hop that was in all those beers was mosaic. And the fourth brewer, who was the most hop savvy, uh, he, uh, I asked him about it, and he said, I quit using Mosaic. And then, so we go and look and um, check. And I said, you, you've got the Mosaic. And, we, and he goes to check, check um, you know, the 11-pound the bag that right. came in, and we can look, and the lot number's on there. And then he went back. I said, why don't you check with... Um, with these other brewers, most of whom did not know what their lot number was, but the one he checked was the same lot number. So they were getting what was more than likely late-picked mosaic because that's when you're more likely to get the onion garlic. Um, but, you know, if you're just buying the hops that show up, and particularly if you're buying them uh, on a spot market or through and Exchange, you also do not know how they were stored um, so that there are a lot more uh, variables there. It is interesting to see that you know since you bring up Brazil, um, you know that is another demand factor that we don't normally consider when we start looking at the kind of explosion in uh, you know volume of hops uh, growing in the Pacific Northwest because the Pacific Northwest is the largest growing area for the entire world of brewing um, and produces some of the most, you know, the most prized hops. You know, um, it is not just, they're not just prized among American craft brewers. We are also seeing this explosion of craft beer throughout the world, um, specifically Central and South America, uh, Asia. And of course, there are plenty of European brewers that are also uh, um, finding this kind of, you know, cross ocean inspiration from American, what American brewers are doing now. Uh, and that has led to this increased demand for these same hops, you know, primarily these aroma varieties, you know, like, uh, like Citra and, um, you know, that too, you know, from your research, uh, do you have any idea of how much, uh, additional demand this kind of international market for these aroma hops has, uh, has created? Um, well, the truthful answer is no. I can't give you a specific number, um, but what you see is the same thing. And you know, it, um, I just did a a virtual beer festival in Poland, and every beer that people are talking about is Citra Mosaic, Sabro. You know, they're already using 692. It's a hop that doesn't even have a name. Yeah. Um, so what what's going there? And of course, England. There's been great demand and and uh, um, Charles Verum who's the the largest hop broker there is working hard to try and develop uh, hops with similar character um, because they'd like to keep the the English hop industry going um, but it, it you know if if it's if it's adding five percent then on an incremental basis, that's that's a tremendous amount. 
Um, it's 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 just it 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 it's kind of a cushion for the right. people who say I'm going to grow these extra acres. You have these kind of dual forces of increasing demand among American brewers, oh, as well as increasing demand among international brewers, and you know even if American brewers have hit you know or starting to hit some sort of plateau in their overall hops buying it is we are still at this kind of early stage even um or just developing stage for international brewers having that same kind of like there is the demand and it is continuing to grow and that is going to continue to push this pace up so i think that you know from a editorial position looking at it uh it, it gets easy to say that things are out of control and there's this oversupply until you consider just how many breweries there are around the world and what that means in terms of uh, broad demand. Well, I, I, I think the other part of that is now you magnify these additional brewers, and it used to be when it was outlandish, you used two pounds of hops per barrel, which I, and and then I would I would go to someplace in, in South America be judging beer, talking about beer. And you talk about uh, using, and at that point you're talking about grams per liter. So 3.8 grams per liter is the same as a pound per barrel. So you say, oh, the Americans are using 16 or 20 uh, grams per liter and they would like fall out of their chairs. Um, and now you go there and you talk about that and everybody just nods their head. Yeah, that's what we're doing. So it doesn't take that many more brewers when, when they are using those, those uh, uh, higher multipliers of hops. Yeah, and when we start talking about uh, you know some of these hot hops like Citra that could be you know ten to fifteen dollars a pound, um, you know on a contract, and using them at a rate of you know six pounds per barrel, uh, the you start looking at or ten pounds per barrel. I mean, I I start thinking about it in terms of like a half barrel keg that half barrel keg of beer that, um, you know, historically you could go and buy a, you know, half barrel of, you know, Budweiser from your distributor for a college party for what, like 120 bucks or something, maybe a hundred, you know, if they had it on a sale and you've now got brewers that are putting more than a hundred dollars worth of hops, just their raw cost in hops into that same sized keg, you know? And so when you visualize it that way and think that it's that just the hops raw materials are costing them that much, you know, to put into that keg, it, it really starts looking crazy. And now, and then you start to kind of get to that point where you understand why we have $14 four packs or even $20 four packs or $24 four packs for that matter. Because when you start layering that many hops plus fruit puree on top of that, well, you know, the, the, the very core things become such expensive things. Let's, um, pivot and move and talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the way that brewers are using hops and some of the things that you've written about us, you know, for us recently, like, like hops creep before we do that, Abe Beverage Equipment provides complete brewing and packaging solutions worldwide. Whether you're just starting out or looking to expand, Abe offers brew houses, tanks, canning lines, and more for small to medium-sized brewers. Abe has equipped over 1,000 breweries worldwide and has the best customer service in the industry. Call Abe Beverage Equipment at 402-475-BEER or visit abeequipment.com to learn more. That's abeequipment.com. 
for complete brewing and packaging solutions. Also, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazines, plus access to our library of video courses, a special deep dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com and click on the subscribe button to join now. Of course, if you subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, you get to read stories from Stan and uh, the rest of our fantastic writers, and all of us would certainly appreciate your support. Um, actually, before we pivot and start talking about Hops Creep and some other uh, you know issues around that, something I noticed recently when looking at the latest planting report is just how Idaho has grown as a hops region. When I started charting this kind of stuff through our infographics in the magazine years ago, you know, Idaho was that number three producer, Oregon was number two, and of course Washington was just running away with it as the, the biggest hops producer. But Idaho has supplanted Oregon as, uh, as the number two grower in the country. Um, what is driving that? Uh, are there specific farms? Obviously, they now have a processing facility, um, you know, it's a, a pelletizing facility in Idaho, and that's certainly streamlining things. But what is driving this kind of growth of Idaho as a hops growing region? Well, a lot of it is those, those new varieties, those more expressive, bold, high impact varieties. Um, what, what makes I mean, the one Willamette Valley is still a great place for hop growing, but it's more coastal and that you, you get a softer hop. And, and right now, people don't necessarily want those softer hops. And, and th those, for a variety of reasons, both a combination of uh, disease and then also other things related to weather, um, you're, you're going to have uh, Citra and Mosaic um, and many of these new Hopsteiner varieties uh, just grow better in Idaho. So then that supports the farmers putting in and the farmers go, oh yeah, I, I can do this. So, so it's in part, part is obviously entrepreneur farmers, but also the opportunity that is created by people wanting um, these bigger boulder hops. Yeah. I mean, when you mentioned the 600 acres is $24 million, $25 yeah. million, you know, to put in. And we think that, look at it, and like in the last four years, something like 3,000 acres of hops has been put into to Idaho alone. I mean, that's uh, that's $100 million uh, plus of infrastructural investment from farmers right. into hops growing. I mean, that's, that is remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, like like I said, let's pivot and talk a little bit about hops creep. This is something that you uh, you know you wrote an article for us about, um, and, and I want to dig in. I want to talk about that, and also then want to talk about uh, reusing hops because that's uh, the last story that you wrote for us, which yeah. I thought was also fascinating. Um, give me a little background on hops creep and what our what our where our current scholarship is on the subject. Well, first of all, I, I do have this fear if I keep getting associated with hop creep that eventually I'm going to see people selling T-shirts with my face on and it's underneath it says hop creep um too late i've already got yeah, those for sale yeah yeah the um the the scholarship actually goes back more than 100 years ago and the uh, and the the notion which wasn't proved at the time that there are enzymes in hops and these enzymes if if the hops are left in the beer and the enzymes are viable that they will continue to convert um and uh, there's also a little bit of sugar in, in hops as well. 
So when you dry, and then so so you have research in like 1890, and then you have some of the 1940s, and then it's only recently when all of a sudden people are going, oh wow, that's a problem. And I guess it's, it's uh, 2017 at the Craft Brewers Conference. And what happened is Allagash uh, was was doing their first really hop forward beer, and which was not not dry hop like these crazy levels, but th- they expected it to be at maybe less than three volumes, and now it's coming up over six volumes. And they said, "What the heck's going on?" As they started working on their process. Uh, they went to Tom Shellhammer at Oregon State, and that's when they went back and started doing um, more complete research. And, and, and the parts are basically what happens because those enzymes are, are in the hops. When you dry hop, they're still in there. Uh, so more dry hopping uh, leads to more hop creep. If you put it in hot side, the the heat process breaks those enzymes down, and they don't correct have the same denatures kind of the enzymes. Yeah. Um, and uh, if you dry hop at higher temperatures, you're more likely to get hop creep, which of course were the two things people were doing that they didn't do in the history of hops before. Right. So you didn't have that. And then the other factor, which is the unknown, and and we're people are still trying to figure out, is is uh, is part of this new hop varieties? Is there something unique in the hop varieties? So there's one bit of research that shows some differences with hop varieties, but there are other factors like how they're handled in the field, when they're picked. Um, It turns out that some research, like with Amarillo, one year is is hop creep is a problem. Another year, hop creep is not a problem. Hmm. Um, You know, we've had it it, 10 years ago, almost the, the hops were kilned at 150, maybe 140, 135, that was treating them special. Now, a lot of times the kilning is at 120, so maybe the denaturing was taking place in the kiln. So, so these are just things that people are now investigating, trying to figure out what to do about it. You know, how, how a brewery, and in, in, in the story I wrote for you, and I don't remember the numbers right off, I should, the magazine's upstairs, but you can take the capacity, um, you know, in, in the case when Creature Comforts did the math um, and Tropicalia, their IPA, which is n- not dry hopped at, at crazy levels, um, was 70% of their production. And basically hop creep, needing to let that beer set an extra few days, which just solves the diacetyl problem. Even, you know, in the package, if it's not consumed quickly, it's going to continue uh, for the body to get a little bit thinner, which they don't want, obviously. Right. Um, so it, it reduced their potential capacity from like 68,000 barrels a year down to 42,000 wow. barrels per year. So for a brewery, all of a sudden, oh, well, if we want to make this much, we'd need this much tank. So there's, it, it's a serious problem. People are finding different solutions. What are some of those solutions? Um, well, uh, in, in the case of, like at Russian River, which has grown large enough uh, that they, they are, um, so, so a hop kiln is a series of beds, and, and they can now say, we, we want an entire bed of Sipco. And they would ask to have that kilned at a higher temperature. Hmm. Uh, and and I've, I've tasted those beers side by side. 
they are different, um, you know, but I only had them at one age. Uh, they, they find with their tasting panel, af after a week, the preference can change. So it, you're getting a slightly different beer, but n not you still go, oh, yeah, this is Pliny the Elder. Um, what uh, Loftus Farms is doing is they're doing what they call flash kilning. So they, they blast it with a certain amount of temperature, and there's, you know, they, they, I, I don't know how, if they did more than one iteration last year. Um, Patrick Smith wants to do more this year. Have to see. It's just going to be a crazy harvest season to, and to see how that yeah. goes. So that's that's why uh, are they Russian step River, kilning? Is that what they're doing? Yeah, yeah. changing the it's temperature. Basically, yeah. except they're they're stepping down. Right. So they right. they first blast. They they hope that they're doing the denaturing and then they're letting it finish up because people want uh, their hops kiln at lower temperatures so you have more essential oil. Sure. You know, essential oil is is has become, you know, the Rosetta Stone or whatever. People um, want the punch out of those hops. And, yes. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. So, uh, and and that and that's why um, uh, Russian River is making that flash mob Citra beer. That that's the flash kiln Citra. Okay. And it's it's a nice beer. And no surprise that right. they wouldn't be selling if it weren't. And we'll have to kind of pay attention and see what the kind of long term effects are. How that you know there are. Certainly, questions whether that stabilizes, you know, um, those kinds of uh, you know characters of hops, so that when you brew with them, they don't die off as quickly. You know, there are, you know, for most brewers that are selling four packs out of their tap room, you know, drink them fast, drink them fresh, and it is what it is. But you know, if you are a larger production brewery and you're selling Tropicalia, uh, you know, throughout the southeast or now even in California, as the case will soon be. Um, you know, and you've got retailers that may be storing it in any, any kind of variety of different ways, warm stored on a shelf, you know, it, it still needs to uh, have an impact for the consumer. And so have stability in that kind of, right. in that kind of hops character is really important. And part of that process, you know, hops processing needs to kind of produce some of that stability. And so, you know, is there any inclination uh, or, you know, any kind of initial studies over the last, you know, 90 or 120 days that um, suggest that it might change the, the stability, you know, through processing that way? Um. There are some things going on. It'll be interesting. So the World Brewing Congress is coming up. Right. It would have been last week or the week before in Minneapolis, like everything. It it, it didn't happen, and now yeah. it's going to be online. And, yeah, there are a lot of hop creep presentations. Yeah. So we'll we'll see what is new there. Right now, I'm afraid I've, I've seen one paper. It's going to be in the NBA quarterly. It indicates that. Uh, variety, we we don't know yet if variety makes a difference, which we, we like things that give us answers that don't say, oh, we need more research. Uh, so <laughs> this one just I, I, I think questions. there'll be some of both. There can be, yeah. you know, over time, th this takes a communication between farmers and brewers that did not take place in the past. Right. You know, things like they asking for lower kilning temperatures, but it, it can be and this can even go back to the breeders, because now you think, can can we find a way, uh, I don't think they can find a way to breed that enzyme out, but if they could identify it, you know, there would be different things that you could do. Um, uh, recently, for a uh, uh, presentation, Hopsteiner was doing online, because like everybody, they're doing a bunch of stuff online, and Tom Nielsen from Sierra Nevada uh, was talking about the perfect hop. 
He's actually talking about the perfect new hop. The land race hops like Hersbrucker and Saz, we can argue, are perfect. Um, but they they, <laughs> yes. they they don't fit because they're you know they're they they're low yielding. You know right. you may only get six seven bales an acre, um, and they're kind of high maintenance. But thinking about those hops, and that's one thing is to begin look looking at. So w- when the the brewer gets the hop, there's less chance of hop creep. And maybe that's through the breeding process. Maybe, and the breeding process can certainly help with disease. Maybe it's something like using less nitrogen. Um, so there, there are a variety of factors we'll have to sort out. And and if if heavy heavily dry hop beers are going to be the norm for a while, then there then somebody's going to have to pay for this research. For sure. Well, and that is, um, it's the wonderful thing about the kind of collective nature of uh, the craft brewing scene in that as folks learn these things, as brewers working with growers and, uh, you know, breeders are trialing these things, um, that information does get shared back out Mm -hmm. and that learning, you know, does. and, And even through things like this, where we are talking to brewers who are sharing what they have been learning through that process, um, this doesn't exist in every industry, and it uh, really is a, a fascinatingly cool piece uh, and a unique feature of craft beer that we should all be proud of and, and celebrate. Let's shift gears and talk about hops reuse. This was a, a fascinating story that you wrote for us, uh, uh, I think, two issues ago, where uh, you found brewers who, um, you know, much as you know, folks have been now using second-use fruit, you know, doing a fruit extraction on beer and then taking that that fruit that was used for that initial extraction and then putting new beer on top of it in order to get a more subtle kind of fruit character, you're now finding you've now found that uh, there are brewers out there in the world who are, you know, conditioning beer on hops and then taking that hops sludge, basically putting new beer on top of it because even through that initial extraction there are still plenty of uh you know available uh oils uh uh, alpha acids beta acids etc available to kind of convey hops flavors into beer um talk to me a little bit about what you found in in researching that who's doing it and what they've learned through that process of hops reuse um well um First of all, when, and this is, again, research at Oregon State University, Dean Hauser, who's, who's really interested in sustainability, and examined what was left after dry hopping, and, and I should have that article in front of me because I've started putting numbers out there, but it, it's way over 50% of the alpha is left, like maybe 70% wow. of the alpha. So you can go back... Um, way like like 56 years ago in uh the breweries on burton and when when they would dry hop and of course those were flowers and then eventually they were plugs um they would take those hops and use them in the kettle for the boil for the next one um so and they could calculate the bitter and they were just doing it for the bitterness so they weren't considering the essential oil or something like that so so using them at the bittering, and then, then of, of course, the idea, let's, let's say we could capture that, package it, and move it on. But as you said, it's sludge. I think the official word is hop goop. Goop, okay. Um, and that goop in there is just 
it, 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 you don't have sustainability if you now have to take it out, dry it, package it, and, and things like that. But within the brewery, yeah. you, you can take that. It, it's in there, um, and it, it, there are a variety of things that brewers are thinking about is when, for instance, if you let some of your yeast drop out before you dry hop, then you're not getting as much yeast. If you're dry hopping with all the yeast present, now you've got the yeast and the hops. You're putting another batch in there, and you're wondering, well, what am I going to get? What's the factor of the yeast? Obviously, autolysis. So there, there are some factors in, in the reusing it. So people are being careful about how they do it. So, so the first time I saw it, and this is before uh, um, anybody was talking about it, people, brewers understood there was something going on with hop creep. And a lot of times they're going, I must be doing something wrong. Uh, so Bosque Brewing in Albuquerque was one of the first brewers to send me an email and say, do you know anything about this thing in 1890, about the enzymes? Because we're seeing that we're getting ongoing attenuation during dry hopping, even though we thought we were at final. Uh, and so, so then later I was at Bosque, and it happened to be a time when, when uh, and I... Uh, think it was Hop Tripper. Um, so one of their cult IPAs, um, they they were doing that. They said, we're leaving the, the hops in here, and we're brewing on top of it. Huh. And they called it Little Whatever. Uh, and you're going, yeah, this works. Uh, and, and then I'd uh, written about Dean Hauser's story, and I do a monthly newsletter called Hop Queries. It's free. Um and uh, Richard Price, who you know otherwise, he, he's the guy who really drove uh, genetic studies on quite yeast. Right. So he, he's labs. Uh, at Scarpment Labs. Uh, and he sent me a note, um, and this is terrible, and I'm afraid that the people in Pennsylvania were doing it. And then also in the newsletter, uh, Black Narrows is doing it. So these are people who just wrote me and say, this is what we're doing. Yeah. So that they don't do it all the time. You've got to think about the yeast factor and think about how hoppy you want your beer to be. When, when we come to a time again where people use hops before zero um, and go back to say, I want to use bittering hops and things like that, it's certainly something that they could think about because it's a lot easier. It's like, well, I hadn't even talked about the essential oil. So it's got... Lots of the alpha. It's got more than half the essential oil. Hmm. But the essential oil transfers out at different rates. So it's going to have lower levels of linalool and geraniol, which are two of the compounds, the, the terpenes, right. that you really want. That they add a Roman flavor. They're also uh, an essential part of uh, the biotransformation process, geraniol gets turned into citronella. Citronella gives all that tropical and lime and and things like that. Right. So, you know, th those are not there, and nobody has measured uh, what might be left in terms of the thiols, which of course is what we want. So there there are a lot of factors there. It's it's definitely something to consider that it's sort of a benchtop experiment to begin with. So when, when you say we don't know the, the, they, that they extract at different rates, 
Um, are you saying then that it may take longer to get anything useful out of this kind of reuse process if you're dry hopping back onto it? I guess it'd be different if you are then throwing that goop um, into a kettle in order to uh, you know, grab whatever's left of the, uh, the alpha acid in that. Yeah, you're certainly going to get the alpha, but you're, I'm, I'm not even sure um, because it, it's uh, the two parts are uh, at Oregon State, they did look at the linalool and geranial, and it's less. And that makes perfect sense because German researchers have already looked at transfer rates because they're going, when you're dry hopping, um, how long do you need to dry hop? And that's one thing to think about is you, you know some compounds, which I, you know, there are more than 500 compounds in hops, maybe 1,000. Um, most of them are, you know, below threshold, but you put them together and you get something else. So in a way, we can consider things like linalool and geranial as markers. They probably bring some other things along with them, but we know linalool and geranial. So the Germans did these studies to see how fast those transfer, to say, you know, if I, if I only dry hop for two days, am I, am I actually getting the transfer of those essential oils, which you are? Uh, those are two of the fastest to transfer. Um, does that dry hopping process pull the easiest to extract linalool and geranial out first and then leave harder to extract in there? Or is it all available and we are talking through the dry hopping process about, you know, issues of time and, you know, temperature that are, you know, and saturation, you know, uh, solubility in the beer that are just limiting that, uh, the, you know, the rest of that extraction? Is there something to it? Is it is it locked further away into the hop? Well, that, that's or, or, a good question just, because have we just reached the kind of like soluble level of these things at the temperature that we dry hop at, and it just can't yeah, move? you're you're not going to get all the oil no matter how long you dry right. hop. If that's what, so, some of it is not going to be accessible, and and you aren't taking all the geranium sure. and linalool out. But so so you're going to get essentially when you're thinking about a Roman flavor, you're going to be using a different hop the next time. It's going to be a different blend. Right. But you, I, I think you can get to know that hop, which, which is what, what these brewers you've been talking to recently, um, you see that, that they, they really get to know the hop because they can go and select that hop and, and they, they are picking what they, they can rub a smell in that raw hop. Generally, it'll be before it's pelletized. And that, that's going to be different at the end of the brewing process. It's, it's, the, the, to begin with, the pelleting process changes. It. Sure. Um, and then everything, the boil changes, the fermentation and so on, all those things change it. But they can smell it and say, hey, this is a hop that's going to be really good in a dry hop, even though it's going to be different. So it's kind of a matter and that would be the process where people want yeah. to reuse it. And, and that would, you know, I think be true. It is true for homebrewers because I've talked to homebrewers. Home, home brewer, I've talked to more homebrewers who, who do this, who are already doing this just, as they'll say, just because they were cheap. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, I mean, it's almost like the kind of, you know, American noble uh, hops that they're marketing, which are the kind of byproduct of the cryo process where they produce, you know. Uh, you know, you have to look at it as this different thing, but it can produce interesting beers if you are thoughtful about how you're designing a beer to be used in that kind of way, you know, in this kind of second use uh, 
you know, type of environment. Nothing's right or wrong. It's just all in how you use it. But you do also raise an interesting question there. Um, you know, there is this fundamental tension in, uh, among brewers, especially on the on, or primarily on the commercial side, between a desire to create new stories for their consumers, which is generally new hops and new combinations and new, new, new. Um, and this fundamental tension between that and, you know, also what you just mentioned, that brewers truly understanding the nuances of, you know, of ingredients. And I, when I say that, I mean, not just this is how Citra works, but this is how this lot of Citra that I have contracted for this year, that's killed at this temperature that comes from this, you know, terroir at this farm that it was picked at this picking window, um, how this Citra, you know, works because that Citra that may come out of, you know, Yakima Valley picked in the second week of picking is going to be different, considerably different at times than Citra also, you know, grown down in the Willamette Valley that was picked in a different picking window. Um, and understanding how, you know, those different things, even though they are ostensibly the same, understanding how those work in the brew house and how to maximize the results of those um, becomes this challenge that brewers then have to tackle every single year as they get their, you know, their new, uh, new hops in. Um, I mean, it really is kind of fascinating to see that tension between the, you know, that, that always wanting something new and then that deeply understanding even for the short period of one year, you know, or as long as they have that, that, you know, contracted hop slot, like how those specific things work. Uh, I, I mean, it really, it's amazingly complex when you start getting under the hood here. You better think this is fun because <laughs> you're going to get to do it a lot. And it's not, it's different, but I, I remember talking to a, a German brewer about making vice beer. And he said, you know, part of my skill as a brewer is some years you get shit ingredients and I still have to make a good drinkable beer out of it. Um, in, in this case, you, kn you know, those, those are yeast driven beers. So that helps because you, you, you've got a choice with your yeast and you can do some changes with that combination of barley and wheat. Uh, with hops, your choices aren't quite as clear. You know, yeah. if, if, if you get something that's got onion garlic, it's going to have onion garlic. Um, there, there was a few years ago at, at Marble, it's quite a few years ago at Marble Breweries because we still lived in New Mexico. So it's, it's maybe nine years ago. And there was a lot of Amarillo. And you read, so in, in, in 2011, Amarillo was grown on one farm. And as there was a growing demand, obviously it was picked at the very beginning of the window, before the very, the beginning of the window, and after the window closed. So you had some variability across of it. And uh, so uh, Ted Rice was the um, in charge of brewing there. Now, now he's like the CEO of the company and stuff, but he's still in charge of brewing. Um, and and he, had, he put that in like a Tupperware thing, a big Tupperware thing. Over the course of months, I go in there and he had these in Tupperware, and he'd walk around and shake them, and then he'd burp them and close them, and he'd do that again and again and again. And after months of this, you could open it up, and it still smelled like onion garlic. Hmm. You get onion garlic, you're screwed. Um, you know, it's it's not much. You what you do is it becomes something that goes into the boil. Yeah. 
and and that's a plus of these hops. I mean, you, you don't want to be spending this much for alpha, but that's the thing about Citra Mosaic, etc. In fact, they have enough alpha that you can use them as a bittering hop and have it be efficient. Right. Again, if if you're starting with your first edition being in the whirlpool, then that's that's a, a different matter. Right, right. At, at some point, though, I, I and I shouldn't say that West Coast IPAs are bittered, um, but it it's pretty strange for me to go and keep talking to people that they 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 their first edition is in the whirlpool. <laughs> Yeah, it's heartbreaking, you know, having talked to uh, Tropes from Resident Culture and uh, uh, Connor and Tim from Cellar Maker and having them both recount stories of throwing away entire batches of uh, Galaxy just because, you know, an incredibly expensive hop because it didn't, you know, didn't produce a beer that they wanted to sell. Um, I mean, yeah. there are, those are heartbreaking moments, uh, you know, for professional brewers. Uh, and also something that gets priced into, you know, what we pay for beer these days and, and uh, possibly not considered on that consumer level. But an important part of it to, you know, to make sure that everyone wants to stand behind what they're putting out um, and aren't going to put out beers just because, you know, they're not going to throw good money after bad just because they bought these hops. Um, you know, and they're not, they don't want to make beer that's not going to be good that people aren't going to enjoy from it. Um, before we uh, be close here, we've talked a lot about hops, but we haven't talked about anything else. So I just want to put it, you know, open something up for you and just ask you a kind of broad based question about what you're, what is really exciting you outside of the world of hops in brewing right now? What do you find, uh, you know, to be an interesting and engaging trend or creative technique or uh, uh, ingredient focus for brewers and that you find has promise and um, may still be in the kind of, you know, nascent or early stages of development among craft beer today? Well, I, I'm still really interested in mixed fermentation. Yeah. Um, other people write about mixed fermentation for the most part, but but to me, you know, there's that natural part of it, and, and I am really interested in how that interacts with hops, um, and and for one thing, is if if you're, it, so you're going to have a little bit of souring in there. Maybe it's always a tricky thing. You know, if we talk about many uh, Brett beers, it, those aren't sour. Right. Uh, you'll you'll hear people say it all the time. They have a little bit of tang. They don't you know they don't taste like lagers. Um, you know there's something else going on there. Uh, but you can take that interaction of and the, and that doesn't have to be the only souring micronet microorganism in there. And their interaction with hops, um, you can get a lot more hop flavor. And that that becomes a possibility for brewers to use less hops. So their ingredient cost in the beer is less. Um, and at that point, in, in depending upon how people are doing mixed fermentations and their variations on Solero, Solero um, which is not a pure form of it, but, but where they're leaving some in, uh, then you, you've got an ongoing changing process. When another plus to that is if your brand is saying it's a changing beer, then you're you're not as hyper about that. So, of course, while you talk about the 
the ingredient cost being less, the time and labor costs may be more. So that's that's the other sort of challenge in there. But how all of this comes together, and then then of course you can take that blend and and right now people, you know, certainly in Vogue and and what I'm seeing right now on Instagram is now as as fresh fruits becoming available, you're seeing that loaded into the beer and things like that. That's not necessarily cheap. So if people begin to say, I'm, I want at that small brewer level, which is what whatever, how many thousands of the breweries in this country do not make 1,000 barrels, uh, it's an immense, and how many are local, and they can take that batch and say, okay, I'm going to add something else interesting. It can be like lavender. And, and, and lavender is an example I like because you do it badly, and then all of a sudden you're thinking of your grandmother's bathroom, and it's not <laughs> sure, very pleasant. Sure. You use it nice, and it adds this nice spiciness, and it, it helps that I wrote the hops book before I wrote Brewing Local because then you're looking at the compounds within, and these are, these are plants. They're both plants. They also, hops, of course, are a cousin to cannabis, so many of the same compounds in there. So you yeah. see uh, the linalool and the geraniol and the terpenol and the nerol. All these things add hop character. Um, at, for instance, uh, scratch in southern Illinois, which is known for the foraging, and these are actually not foraged. They're basil beers, but they can make a beer with three different basils, and you put those together um, and... You know, you blend them, and all of a sudden you've got this unique aroma, some of the same things that you get into hops. So you give it to people, you can have that conversation with them. You can't have that conversation with them if you're selling 100,000 barrels, putting it in cans, and shipping it to Kroger. Um, it, that doesn't work like that. Um, when I listen to the cellar maker guys uh, talking about uh, blending lots, I was really surprised that they, they'd have five different lots of um, Nelson. Nelson. Yeah. Um, simply because there isn't that much Nelson. <laughs> you know? uh, it's a curious. I mean, there are reasons there aren't. It'll it'll be interesting. This uh, that so the new hop out of um, uh, New Zealand's called Nectaron. Nectaron. Which means it's like yeah, nectar of the gods. Yeah. And then Ron Beeson is who bred it. And in, in the in the past, of course, all the New Zealand hops. Well, it, they got renamed. You'd have like super saws, but they're all renamed to like regions and native words. Right. Uh, and this is the first one that's named more with the idea of marketing. But in the case of Nelson, Nelson is, you know, one reason you don't get more Nelson Sauvin is it, it doesn't qualify as a perfect hop at all. It's horrible to pick. It shatters. So it's a really hard hop to farm. And so if, if Nectaron... If people began to say even it's not meant to be a clone of Nelson, but they begin to like that more, then the farmers, it's easier for them to grow, it's more efficient, and that, that's why you'll, you'll end up um, you know, maybe shifting to Nectaron or something like have, that. Have you had any beers made with Nectaron yet? Um, or have you rubbed it yourself? Maybe. I, I think I did. Uh, when I was in Australia four years ago, but this is the okay. goofy thing with okay. their development. So, um, so Doug Donlan was in charge of New Zealand hops at the time. He's since retired, and he he brought hops. We, we were just doing like this panel, but but you've got these hops, and he said these are some experimental hops. But he has the number 
crossed out because if, even if you know that number, there's a chance that it becomes the first year of plant rights. And you know they want to keep it proprietary for as long as they can. So in the case of New Zealand, what they did is they take all their experimental hops at the end of the year, they put them together in one batch. Mm. When, you know, they put all those hops together and pelletize them. And I think it goes primarily to home brewers. Um, so this year, your buddy, as a matter of fact, with the South African hops. Yeah. Uh, so he selected... Um, uh, We're talking about you know, Greg the, so Crum the, from ZA yeah, Hops. Yeah, Greg Crum, uh, ZA Hops. Um, Who happens they, to live about four minutes away from me here in Fort yeah. Collins. Is that walking or driving? Um, I can I could bike it in about five, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, so, so he's taken the promising experimentals and put them into one blend. Interesting. Uh, be, and that should be available now because that was harvested. Yeah. Uh, uh, harvest was late down there for right, obvious reasons, right. uh, but that that should be coming available. But this idea that you, I mean, obviously it's going to be different each year. You know, you're going to have to rub it and smell it, do some pilot batches and things right. like that. But 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 people enjoy those sort of things. So I, I'm I'm sure, that, you know, that the brewers in New Zealand have been using that hop for a few years, uh, and and I'm sure that Americans are are going to want to use it as well. And then, then the hop out of Australia uh, has been known as 0-16. I think it has a name, but we have crossing email, so I, I need to get its name. Um, and that, um, and Asheville, actually Weaverville at Zebulon mm -hmm. for uh, Asheville Beer Week a few years ago, we did a bunch of uh, experimental like single hop IPAs. Yeah. That's like, you know, it, that in uh, total is probably more IPAs. Mike Zarnowski is his brood um, since he's been there was just doing those 10 IPAs. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was uh, that, that, but with 016, it, it sat right. It had tropical notes. It had that Mandarin, a lot of those things you went, but boy, it was, it was uh, a little over the top dank, which mm. I, I think some people will like yeah. and some will not like. And, it might have been a little bit catty. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking it was a little bit catty. So I'd forgotten that till now. Well, as these uh, roll out uh, in a larger commercial scale, uh, I can't wait to see what brewers have fun with and uh, and how they, uh, you know, take to them creatively and uh, and see what they come up with, pair them with in order to kind of pull the best characters out of all of them. Um, Stan, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with G&D Chillers. Set your compass by RAR North Star Pills. Mountain Rose Herbs offers the highest quality organic herbs, spices, and teas. Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in branded drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. Abe Beverage Equipment offers complete brewing and packaging solutions and Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast and to read stories from my guest today, Stan Hieronymus. Stan, if people want to uh, learn more about you or follow what you do, where do they find you? Um, AppalachianBeer.com. Uh, so if your name is Hieronymus, you should not have a website that people can't spell either. But it's, <laughs> yeah, Appalachian, uh, that, was, that was great. You, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. A P P E L L A T I O N dot com. And um, on the front page there, you'll see a thing, a couple places where you can sign up for Hop Query. You, you can click on there and, and see if you want to get Hop Queries. Uh, but like I said, it's a newsletter, comes out 
once a month, most months, or at least 10 or 11 times a year. Um, doesn't cost anything, so it's just sort of me seeing new stuff. And um, in this next issue, we're going to talk about something different with Hop Terroir. Uh, and the first time I've seen that it's actually um, um, related to pest resistance. And then a little bit about how Germans dry hopped in the 19th century, which I don't think most of us knew. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Well, again, thanks for talking to me on the podcast. I'm glad we could uh, get this conversation out there. And uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Okay, I look forward to seeing you in person uh, uh, within the next decade. Um, you know, it is the kind of thing I think that, uh, well, we're all you know, holding out hope for some vaccine available later this year or early part of next year, um, and then some months to get everyone vaccinated to the point where we can have some sort of broader-based immunity and, and help us get back to seeing and drinking beer in person. In the meantime, we're going to make the best of this and have conversations and, and do this in the way that we're doing it right now. And so I appreciate you. And it's, it's good to see you. And it's, I, okay. you know, it's been uh, a long time since I have seen you yep. in person and I, you're right. I can't wait to drink a beer together uh, someday soon. Yeah. Cheers. Sounds good. All right. This podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.